Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Monday Match Analysis. Today's episode is a conversation with the great Hall of Famer, author of the book, The Greatest Tennis Matches of All Time, writer for Tennis.com, Steve Flink. We get into an old classic match that's worth reliving. I gave you a couple matches, and I said, Steve, which one of these classic matches that some of my uh, followers on Twitter have, have recommended to me? Which one of these grabs your, your eyes? And you went with, I think there were two options, but one of them you went with was the 1984 French Open final uh, right. between uh, John McEnroe and Ivan Lendl. Without giving away too much, because I want to keep the suspense for those sure. who don't know what happened in this match, what, sure. why was that your pick? Well, now that's the problem is I'd have to give, I don't want to give away. I know you want to keep the suspense of the match. It, let's put it this way. It was a pivotal match in each of their careers for very different reasons, which is why I liked it. And also because it was so closely contested. It was uh, in their rivalry. It was definitely the best match of their rivalry in my mind by far. They had another one once in Dallas, very close one in Dallas at WCT finals. But I would put this one at the top of their list. Most of the times when they met in majors, tended to be one-sided one way or another. Uh, this one was the exception. And it had dramatic overtones for both players. So that's why I picked it. I also thought there was a pretty darn good level of play, all things considered, you know, at different stages of the match from, from both players. Absolutely. It was good quality tennis, but there was so much in the lead up to this. The stakes were so high for both players. We'll get into both. And then even in the aftermath, just this was uh, arguably a turning point in both of their careers. Uh, but let's start with the broadcast because I, I just got finished watching this match. And uh, one of the now, first which, things. You know, which, which network, which version did you get? The American NBC? Yep, I got NBC. Okay. Dick Enberg and Bud Collins, two people yeah. who, are, who are dearly missed in the tennis community, right? Well, two people that I knew very well, especially Bud. But I, I did know Dick as well. And interestingly enough, when you mentioned the Hall of Fame, we had a dinner 
in 2017, the year that I was fortunate enough to be inducted. And they, they always do a dinner at the end of the U.S. Open. And, um, and uh, it's in New York. And they, tried, they often would get a prominent host. And Dick hosted the dinner in September of 2017. And then a few months later, he died in his home. It was very sad. He seemed to have so much vitality when I saw him. And he reminded me of the old Dick Enberg. So, yeah, we're sad that both of them are gone. Bud, Bud left us the previous year. Yeah, they they were fantastic uh, on this match, and uh, I could I could see why you know they're they, why they're so they sorely missed. Yeah, sorry to interrupt. They were That's awfully okay. good. They were awfully good consistently. I think they respected each other. They didn't step on each other's toes. They had different strengths, totally different personalities. I thought it was a nice blend, and and they and they they really liked each other a lot off the air as well. And it that came into play when they when they worked. That helps for sure. Yeah. So. The big storyline coming in, I'd say the number one, is sure. jo- jo- John McEnroe hadn't lost a match, uh, hasn't lost a match in 1984. Right. Uh, he is, I mean, to this day, is it fair to say this is the greatest start in the history of the sport? Well, it was, I would say that, that at Novak Djokovic did slightly surpass him. It's a very similar thing. The similarity was all the way up to the French. No, I mean, it was, it was, there were de- interesting parallels. But this certainly was the greatest start of anybody up, up until Djokovic in 11. And it was very comparable, very comparable start. And, and pretty hard to, to do this, to come into the French Open unbeaten. Right. It was a 42-match win streak for McEnroe. Six titles, 39-0 and 0 on the season. So he had previously won the, uh, the year-end championship. What was it called? The Volvo Indoorser. Or something the Masters, like the Masters, Volvo Masters, right? Yeah. Um. So, so he had won that the year prior. It was forty-two matches in a row for Lendl. The story was well, he hadn't won his first major yet, and he had thirty-nine career titles. That's un. That, I couldn't believe that. And the only person who comes to mind is maybe someone who he wound up coaching later. I had to look up Andy Murray. How many? Well, there now you got it. Not even got close it. though. Because here's the thing. Here's what was fascinating. Murray had lost his first four finals, and he broke through with Lendl coaching. Lendl, coming into this match, we're not going to say who's won it yet, but coming into this match, he had lost the finals of the 82 and 83 U.S. Opens to Connors. He'd lost to – and then he had lost the 81 French final to Borg and the 83 Australian to Wielander. So a couple of Swedes, the two great Swedes, and Jimmy Connors twice at the Open. So he'd lost four finals, and he, he had sort of been developing, an, somewhat unfairly, the reputation of somebody who couldn't win when the chips were down. He couldn't win it when it counted. Yvonne could win WCT tournaments, Masters titles, a lot of borderline majors, but not the very biggest at the Grand Slam events. So this was the reputation he was carrying into this match with, with John McEnroe. If you were to editorialize that, what was going on with Yvonne? Was it just bad luck? I mean, four finals, or was there something mental there? Well, it, 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 different factors. 1981, he loses in five sets to Borg on clay, and Bjorn up until then was the greatest clay court player of all time until he surpassed by Rafael Nadal. So that one, what can you say? Debut was a pretty good debut to go down in five. He did have some difficult moments in the two Connors finals at the U.S. Open. First one, I thought he was quite nervous, and he'd had a, a better year up until then, and Jimmy outplayed him. The second one, he had a chance to go two sets to one up, had a set point in the third set, double folded, and collapsed after that. And 
so, and then Vlander, what can you say? Matt's just adapted better to the grass, I think, to beat Yvonne in Australia. So it was different factors, but he definitely didn't do himself full justice. Somewhere in the line there, take the Borg one away. But right. somewhere in the other three finals, he should have won at least one of those. Yeah, I mean, just for, for some perspective, just comparing him to Andy Murray, Murray had won 23 career titles, including Olympics, before he won the U.S. Open. And Lendl, again, was at 39. The head-to-head between McEnroe and Lendl was 10-8 to in favor of John at this point. Lendl had gotten the better of him early on, but then McEnroe started really beating well, him on a regular basis. Exactly, exactly. That's what made this rivalry so interesting. They each went on some tears against each other. And there were stages where they were dominant. And, and Yvonne had been very dominant. I think won seven in a row one stage before this. And then, but earlier this year, leading up to this match, you know, he, he, John had some very decisive wins over, over Yvonne uh, in, on the road to Roland Garros in that 84 season. The play styles are incredibly contrasting and different. What what is immediately striking about Lendl is just how heavy he hits the ball, especially for his time, right? The forehand is massive. He had developed this topspin backhand. And uh, McEnroe, of course, I covered him in uh, last Monday. Um, he just had incredible hands, loved to get to the net, and to use his touch and his feel. Yeah, very well described. I mean, the thing is that you mentioned uh, Lendl. I mean, he was sort of the transformational. He, to me, was the most influential player in the sense of how players performed after him, stylistically. There's the idea of a pretty big serve that could set up the inside-out forehand that was explosive that you just described. And then the back-end topspin was still relatively flat. He hit through it beautifully. This was not a topspin, a Bjorn Borg type topspin or a loopy shot. He really hit through that back end. So he was so forceful from the baseline and, 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 and he was so fit. He just was, you know, he, he was also known for that going into the gym and doing all the hard work so that he could wear guys down in long matches. So it was an interesting contrast with John with all that natural flair and talent. And you wouldn't have thought that John would, John would be necessarily comfortable on clay. And there are a lot of stages in, in his career when, when he wasn't. But this particular year, he's playing the best clay court tennis of his life. And that was true coming into this final with Yvonne as well. It was also part of the stakes because an American hadn't won the French Open since 1955. Tony Trabert. That was Trabert winning his second in a row. Absolutely right. So, you know, right. well, exactly. And, and, and John, I'm sure, was fully aware of that. And I think Tony, who had been his Davis Cup captain, would have been happy to see John succeed him I think he was I think he was very uh hopeful that John given the way he was playing coming in was going to win this match so there are all these things floating around the perimeters of this match Gillen and it's hard not to to give it away but this was this was such a gripping clash absolutely gripping and and the last thing I'll just throw in on top of all this McEnroe number one in the world Lendl number two in the world Dick Enberg said it felt like a heavyweight fight uh, before the first serve. And right before the first serve, McEnroe started feuding with the photographers. Literally yeah. not a single ball had been hit. And right, apparently right. this was a back and forth throughout the whole tournament. What was going on with McEnroe well, you know, and the was, photographers? Yeah, I was there. I could, none of us could understand. I was watching it with Curry Kirkpatrick, the Sports Illustrated writer, and we were just shaking our heads. But that was John. Sometimes it was almost as if he needed this kind of altercation 
even if it was seemed to be manufactured, he seemed to need it to get his juices flowing, to get himself. You wouldn't have thought so. You wouldn't have thought that he would want to waste that kind of energy. But I think this match meant a lot to him. He really wanted to beat Lendl. He, known, he knew he had kind of owned him along the way to Roland Garros. So he was, he was maybe a little bit uh, over, overwrought, overwrought. He just, he really wanted to peak on this occasion. So the tension more than surfaced, it, it, it spilled over. And, and in some ways, maybe it wasn't a, a bad thing that he got that out of his system initially before the match with the way you described. Yeah, he did, he did get off to a really good start. Uh, the first, the first break of serve was at two, three Lendl serving and at 15 all he missed an easy, easy overhead. Uh, it was 1530 at that point, the game went to deuce. Uh, and then a couple strong returns by McEnroe, uh, followed it, followed both of his returns up to the net and really jumped on Lendl in this match early on. Yeah, which is the kind of the brand of clay court tennis he played that, that whole year. Very little compromising. He played not that differently from the way he would have played on hard court. So, you know, a, a little bit of give and take, a little bit of somewhat, some compromising, but not a lot. And, and it's unnerving for someone like Lendl who really much preferred the rhythmic he would have much preferred to play Connors on clay, for instance, or or even Mats Wielander, as much as he respected Mats as a clay court player, the matchup itself, I think, was more comfortable for him. And he was he was playing the kind of clay court tennis that he wanted and long rallies and waiting for his openings to hit a penetrating forehand. And that's that's how he wanted to play conventional clay court tennis. This was not conventional. McEnroe right. was turning it almost into a fast court contest on a clay court. And in the beginning, his first serve was firing as well. So first set, 6-3 to McEnroe. Second set, it's really, it's more of the same. And it becomes 5-1 at one point. Some some things that, one thing I wrote down, uh, you know, just in my notes while I was watching is sometimes Lendl just seemed very uncreative on his passing shots no lobs no short angles a lot down the line and even when he went cross court just wasn't finding the sharp angle was focusing a little bit too much on his pace and McEnroe was having his way at the net I loved Lendl I loved the way he played I loved his professionalism I loved the fact that he went on court with game plans clear game plans he used to keep notebooks before he started hiring coaches like Wojciech feedback from Poland and later Tony Roach, his most important coach, who was from Australia. And then they did a lot of the work for him. He didn't have to do the same way, but he would literally keep notebooks on the, on his opponents. I, my gripe was that sometimes he was too programmed and he wouldn't. So the kinds of criticisms you're making right now, that maybe it, it didn't sink into his system enough. I've got to change. I've got to do something different. I've got to mix it up or it can't be so predictable. He just prided himself on the fact that he had the plan going out there and he was going to stick steadfastly to the way he thought he should play. So that's, I agree with you. And that's how I remembered at the time. And I've seen the tape, you know, I I haven't watched it actually for a long time. I deliberately didn't watch it before we came on tonight because I, I I just, I preferred to sort of just remember it, but I, I have clear recollection sitting in that press section behind the court as it was in those days at, at Roland Garros. And I remember thinking, boy, Yvonne is really, he's bottled himself up here. He's boxed himself in. And if he doesn't make some adjustments here, he's going to, he's going to be off this court in a hurry. Right. It was not a match through, through two sets. It was not a match that 
you were expecting to turn into a classic match, right? You were probably thinking, if anything, wow. I mean, John McEnroe is just a train that can't be stopped right now through two sets. That's exactly what we were thinking. And of course, in the back of our minds, I think some of us in that press section, the only thing we thought might get in his way was his psyche, was just what you described, the agitation right before the match, getting all out of sorts with the photographers before you've even played a point. And there was always that potential. And you always knew that, John, something, something might be triggered in him that where he would lose it. And John was different from say Pancho Gonzalez who could lose his temper. And, and there were times when John could make the resurrection come back from an eruption, but not always, not always. I, and there was always this danger. I was going to ask you about that. Exactly. I mean, I, I do have some quotes from, from McEnroe um, in the third set. He called him himself. He called himself a stupid moronic idiot. Yeah, uh, yeah, and I mean, he would yell these things after missing a first serve. That's the that's the kind of thing any any junior coach is like. Do not tell your opponent that you're struggling like this. But McEnroe didn't seem to follow those rules. But no, I don't. I, yeah, I I see your point. I'm not sure he was that necessarily worried about showing that to Yvonne. But it it, mm-hmm. it it's it just it said something about him. The, the part that, that baffled me was, why are you doing this to yourself? I mean, yeah, be a perfectionist, but not to the point where you're, it's so negative that you're chiding yourself when you've been playing a brilliant match. I mean, you have to cut yourself a little bit of slack. That's what, 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 what amazed me more was, why would, come on, you played an almost perfect match. Go easy on yourself. You know, don't, 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 uh, don't lose it over something like that. Yeah. And the thing that, that he did lose it on, and, and this, is, this is really what turned in the third set, is McEnroe could not make a first serve. He was literally hovering around 30% in that set. And I just don't, I don't think Lendl is the kind of player that you can get away with that against because his particularly ground strokes are so heavy. Absolutely, but particularly on clay. You know, John maybe on the faster court who had a very good second serve, still going to get in behind it, and maybe he can – he could get away with a low first first serve percentage, but not on the red clay at Roland Garros. And, and, and it was a hot. It, granted, it was a hot day, but that that was that was going to catch up to him. Uh, inevitably, it would. So let's go. I'm just going to go to four or five here, just so we can wrap up this third set. Uh, okay. his, his percentage in the first was officially 36 percent, but uh, McEnroe serving at four or five. And at this point, I think Lendl corrects what I didn't like about what he was doing in the first two sets. Uh, he mixes in lobs, and he begins to find his cross-court angle more often. At this game in 4-5, a great lob at love all to start, and then a great cross-court short-angle backhand return. That makes it love 30. Lendl misses a routine forehand volley. 15-30, a massive backhand return by Lendl off of McEnroe's signature slice serve out right, wide. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now when Lendo, Lendo was like Borg, if he read that, granted Borg had, a, had the difficulty of having a two-hander, so he really had to read it early, or else he was dragged wide, and, and with a two-hander, it was pretty difficult to make those returns. But in the, the similarity was if they could get onto that, they could use the angle to their advantage, and they had openings to either rip it down the line or go sharp cross-court, and, and Yvonne... Sooner or later, he was going to get onto that serve on a big point, and, and that was it. Absolutely. And on set point, another return just hammered by Lendl. 
came in behind his backhand and McEnroe couldn't make the pass. So that is six, four for Lendl in the third set. Uh, and the fourth set was, you think about it. That was a clutch game from Lendl in a way, mm -hmm. because if, you, if John holds there and holds one more time, maybe even though he's not as dominant as the first two sets, maybe he, he wins a tie break and he's off the court with a straight set victory. But that, so that was yeah. a, you know, he, he had still, he still was playing well and he just needed those two holds to get into a tie break conceivably to try to finish off the match there. So I thought that was a very good effort from Lendl to lift his game at, at that juncture. I agree. And, and McEnroe also, you know, he, he did taste it a couple times. There were, there were, he broke serve uh, early in this set. So he, he, you know, he felt that, okay, I'm up two sets and a break. And I think that might've made it more painful that it slipped away as opposed to Lendl just running away with the third set more easily. Yeah, I think I, 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 that's true. It's true. But I think that the, the, the key thing was Lendl by early in the third, he was returning better. You know, he was going to, he was going to break him. It was going to happen sooner or later. And, and, and John knew that. And then John wasn't automatically jumping, able to jump on Yvonne's serve as easily as he had on Yvonne's second serve the way he had the first two sets. So the complexion was changing a little by then. Now in the fourth set, McEnroe's first serve does not get any better. He's still not making it. He's still getting very frustrated with himself. The biggest difference, what, what kept John in, that, in this uh, fourth set for, for a while here is that he was breaking serve. It was really, there were tons of breaks in this fourth oh, set. Oh, listen, he had 4-2 in that fourth set. That was a yes. very, that was, a, that, was, that was, he was agonizingly close at that point. You know, a couple more holds from there and he's, he's, He's got it in four sets. That was a big opening for him. And, but I thought Lendl played awfully well to come back from that deficit and, and win that set uh, in the end very deservedly. You know, he lost only one more game, lost only one more game from there. And, and that was very disappointing for McEnroe, I think, to not be able to close it from 4-2. McEnroe yelled after missing one of his first serves, serving for the set. One out of 50. Um, so he, he continued to get, to get really frustrated there. Yeah, and, yeah. um, one thing I noticed also is that McEnroe's backhand was very strong in the early going, but the heaviness of Lendl's ball, as long as it were deep in the court started to frustrate Yvonne. Um, and I wonder if that, or excuse me, Yvonne started to frustrate McEnroe with the heaviness of his cross court forehand. And I wonder if, as McEnroe progressed in his career and more players started to play like Lendl, how much of a problem did that almost half volley from the baseline style get? Well, I think he'd had, he had issues with that earlier in his rivalry with Lendl, not, not really just on clay, but I remember even at the, an example being the 1982 U.S. Open where, where Yvonne just bludgeoned John in the semis. John had been in the finals of Wimbledon against Connors, losing in five. He really wanted to win his fourth Open in a row. And Lendl denied him that chance for the straight set win in the semifinals. And it was just brute force. And, and yes, when he could pin him back there with the depth and pace that he had, John trying to half volley the ball back or else forced to compromise a little bit and give a little ground, which then he was even worse off if he did that. So he really had to try to stay up on the baseline and, flick those balls back, but it wasn't easy. It was a lot of pace coming at him uh, off both sides. He, there's no doubt that the Lendl ground game was superior to John's. John had to find a way to, to get in. There's no doubt about it. And, and mix it up off the, from the baseline, but then work his way in as soon as possible. 
So Lendl breaks for the set at four five once again, and they head for a fifth. Do you, do you remember at that time, what were you thinking? Did you have kind of an inclination of how that fifth set was going to go? I still thought, I still thought it was, it was, it was a, it, almost a toss up. Obviously Lendl had all this momentum and uh, you know, you, you felt like, I, I didn't feel like it was in the bag for Lendl because John had lost two sets in a row. Uh, I, I still thought he was going to give it a real go, but I remember just being impressed that Lendl was, was, had worked his way into the fifth. And I just felt like, it, I felt like in the end, it was probably going to come down to one crucial break by then. Lendl was, was holding serve, was doing a better job holding serve despite some difficulties in the fourth. And I felt like, his overall game was he had he had picked up his level considerably, and he certainly did. McEnroe finally had a, an acceptable serving set in the fifth. So John started holding as well because he, I don't think he was making as many firsts as he would like, but he was making enough firsts where it wasn't around thirty percent like it was uh, in the third and the fourth set. So you did see a lot of holds. Um, Keep in mind, Gil, that also the other factor was that he, he realized that Lendl had found his range on the return. Sometimes the guy's first serve percentage goes down because the opponent, it's like people serving against Novak right now. The pressure is really on. There are times when you'll see Federer's first serve percentage dip a lot if, if Djokovic is returning really well because you're feeling the pressure to get 70 or 75% of your first serves in and you start pressing. Absolutely. I, I think uh, I think that was a big part of it. I mean, Lendl really does remind me of what I, 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 I'll i say three players in the modern game, Nadal, Team, and Vavrenka. Uh, what those three can do, taking big cuts off of a second serve on clay, I think Lendl was, was doing a lot of that back then. Yeah, he's probably, he's probably, uh, he, I think the team comparison is a really good one. Uh, you know, I think, you know, because team being a, and stand to they have the one, they were their one handed backhands that there is some resemblance to Lendl in that sense. And I kind of like the team comparison because team also relies on a really heavy ground game, a pretty big first serve. I, I, I think there, there's some definite uh, resemblance there. So, and I also noticed that Lendl's cross court backhand pass, uh, even though he was known for his forehand, that was the pass that was working over and over again by the, by the end of this match. I mean, it was really giving McEnroe trouble. And even when, when John put Lendl on the run on the forehand side, you know, that was your, your traditionally dangerous wing. So, uh, and then. But you see, the thing is that, that Yvonne actually, the reason I think that was so effective, he had a great down the line back end and John mm -hmm. knew that. And I think in, in, in some, there are a lot of times you could get into a, rhythm on his back end down the line and hit that shot a lot, passing shots and in rallies. But it was very wise for him to start going for the, the, the angled cross-court passes. And mixing in the lobs to keep McEnroe uh, from really getting on top of the net where I think he likes to be opens up the, those angles even more effectively. Yeah, and I think he felt by the fifth, he probably felt like John was maybe a little fatigued. Certainly was mentally fatigued, but I think he – Lendl probably believed that John was physically fatigued as well. He may well have been right. So let's jump to 5-6. McEnroe is serving. Uh, he misses a volley on the first point. Uh, so love 15. 
then an insane down-the-line forehand pass that Lendl scraped off the ground. McEnroe just pops up the next volley. Easy pass for Lendl. That makes it love 30. Um, Serve and volley on love 30 by McEnroe. Puts away the overhead, 15-30. Another serve and volley. And again, Lendl hammers this return so much pace that McEnroe just blocks back the next volley and Lendl passes easily. Yeah, that was that was a that was a familiar routine in their matches, when, when especially when Lendo was playing well. And obviously, the guys who ca- great counterattackers like him, they know you don't always have to pass them off, off the first time. You set it up, use your pace or your dipping pass to, to set to set up an easier pass. Lendo was very adept at doing that. McEnroe um, got it to thirty forty, saved it at fifteen forty. And then um, 30-40, he has a makeable volley. Oh, very, and, very makeable. Very makeable. Yeah, that was actually – I remember all of us, could, we kind of went, oh. I mean, we were stunned because we thought he had the point one. But, again, that was a lot of pressure by then. You know, you're serving to stay in the match. It's just so much tension. Lendl has taken the third and fourth sets. You're still fretting about why you didn't close him out sooner. And it, that was understandable, I guess, by that stage that he'd make that one last fatal mistake. But – Gil, let me just say this in terms of the of the match itself. You probably know that you probably heard McEnroe discuss it. He's mentioned it about a million times since that day. It's 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 it was a haunting, tormenting loss because that would have been his one French Open. Now he never won the Australian either, so he wouldn't have had a career slam. He didn't play the Australian much, but it still was a title. He really I don't think it bothers him that much that he didn't win Australia, but it really irks him that this one didn't go his way and he's Blames himself. He's very hard on himself to get back to our earlier discussion about how he was carrying on. But here's what I what bothers me about the way that match is discussed. Yvonne Lendl, as we talked about earlier, lost the four finals, two to Connors, one to Bielander, one to Board. Now he's finally on the board. How does he do it? He comes from two sets down to beat John McEnroe, who he hasn't beaten all year. Who, John McEnroe, who's been unbeaten all year. And Yvonne manages to topple him from two sets down. And all people could talk about they, they, they sort of took John's version of the match, meaning he choked it away. I, didn't, I don't think that's fair. The last three sets were all very, very competitive. In, the, in that third set, at one stage, it was three off, 15, 40. You had, there were stages there in the third where I thought John could do it. Then 4-2 in the, four, four, two in the uh, fourth, as we discussed. Third, okay, not great chances. Great chance for John, but good comeback from Yvonne. And then the fifth, there was a stage where it was three all 1540. That's what I'm really talking about. So I, it's John was, he had openings, chances, but, but Yvonne competed so well. And I think he should have been given more credit. What, if he was the one who was being uh, uh, castigated or criticized, criticized for sure, but why can't Yvonne win the big one? So he finally wins a big one. And all everybody wanted to talk about was what happened to McEnroe? How could he squander the two set lead? Well, he didn't collapse and go down 2-1-2 and two in the last three sets and get crushed. All those sets were very competitive, starting with the third set that you described well and with John serving to stay in it at 4-5. Very hard-fought fourth. And a hard-fought fifth goes right down to the wire. So I really think that Lendl, to this day, I don't think he's been given the credit he deserved. And it led to seven more Grand Slam titles for a total of eight for Yvonne. And so he, he really sort of altered his career arc by doing all this I mean up until then you know a great player who hadn't won the big ones but that really freed him up 
And obviously he got to eight straight U.S. Open finals in one stage, won only three. But I'm just saying he became a better big match player. And I think that victory is one that he should cherish. And it should be, I wish the emphasis were more on that he won it than that John lost it. I've, I've heard McEnroe say, I'm, I'm still not over it. He called in his autobiography, he said it was his most bitter defeat. But I completely agree with you, especially that fifth set is the, the main one that I circled where, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, you know, Mac, McEnroe had an adrenaline rush at three all. You mentioned 1540. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Lendl yeah. played some fantastic tennis oh, to he dig did. out of that. He did. So, I mean, so you, you, you look at it and he had, yes, John had chances, but that's also proof that Lendl was fighting hard and not giving in, not ceding any ground and, and also playing a much higher level than he had in the first two sets. And I think the fact that he could beat a guy he hadn't beaten the whole year who was also unbeaten by anyone that year up until that stage and do it to get to collect your first major title i think that was really commendable and and i've never understood why more more uh, writers and observers won't wouldn't look at it that way and the, and again john i perfectly understand that if i'm in john's shoes i would lament that loss the rest of my life too and he has every right to be frustrated by it and he, he played so brilliantly for two sets but i think for neutral observers it should be more of a, a of a lauding of Lendl and yes you can be critical of McEnroe I mean he didn't put the clamps down he couldn't find a way to close it out but a lot of that had to do with Lendl's clay court mastery too Lendl was a great clay court player yeah and I think that was a big part of it I think we ended up seeing that in in flushing a couple months later right when McEnroe uh beat Lendl in the U.S. Open final, got his revenge. So court speed was at play here. And you mentioned McEnroe kind of going against the grain in terms of how it's, I guess, easiest to play on clay. Well, so what, we should also, what we should also say is that he ends up the year, and it's very tricky when you look at the stats back then because those January Masters were part of the previous. So in other words, he won uh-huh. the Masters in January of 85 to cap off an 82-3 and three season. So three losses in all of the 84 season. This was the first. He lost a BJ Armitage in Cincinnati over the summer, and then he lost a Davis Cup match in Sweden at the end of the year. That was it for the entire campaign. So it was a spectacular year. But retrospectively, it doesn't shock me that one of the losses would happen to be on clay, and it would be up against a player of – you know, against Yvonne Lendl, who was one of the great clay court players. So there's some logic to it even though it, it was shocking that Lendl would do it from two sets down. So there's two turning points that I think this match at least statistically signified. One, the Lendl-McEnroe head-to-head uh, shortly after 1984 really turns in Yvonne's favor, and Yvonne wins 10 out of the last 11 against McEnroe. What do you feel happened in that matchup? Well, I think that, that, that McEnroe... Obviously, that was his vintage peak year in 84. And after the 85 season, where he was slightly less great, if I not quite as prodigious as he'd been in 84, still great, but key match was the U.S. Open final. You mentioned the Open final of 84. They come back to the 85 U.S. Open final. And McEnroe got off to a good start and had 5-2, but he was exhausted from having a five-setter with Bielander the day before. And Lendl came back and crushed him seven, six, I think three and four from there with straight sets. And that, and I think that was a, that was a crucial win in, 
in their series. And then he just got back to sort of manhandling him from the baseline. And John wasn't really ever the same player after that, after things changed in 85. He had a little resurgence in 89, but what Yvonne was coming into some of his best seasons. Yvonne's best seasons were 85, 6, 7, and he's still great, still awfully good in 88 and 89 as well. And meantime, John had was never quite the same. I think he would admit that. And so that's, that's partially what happened in the rivalry. But it was a fascinating rivalry, Gil, because the, as we said earlier, there just were fluctuations all the way through. Lendl for a while dominating John up in that period of, say, 81, 82, and then John turns it in 83 and 84, and it goes back Yvonne's way in 85. It was pretty interesting to see the way they could, for brief stages, at certain stages, the way they could dominate each other. Right. And uh, to your point, McEnroe, after 84, after winning Wimbledon and the U.S. Open, he didn't win another slam. Lendl went on to win another seven. And uh, his win percentage, 90% or above in 1985 through 87, which which you mentioned were were his strongest years. Oh, those were great Uh, Quite the run. Quite the run. Yeah, because he would, every year, he was always a big threat, especially, well, at three of the four. And then, unfortunately for him in that period, he lost two Wimbledon finals. Uh, you know, it, it, was, it was tough for him to – he lost in, in 86 and 87 back-to-back to Becker and Pat Cash. That was frustrating for Yvonne, but he was winning some more French in that period. And, and then in the U.S. Open, he was in the midst of that streak, and he actually won it in 80 in, – and he, he defended it again after 85. He won it in 86 and 87, and then lost in the finals in 88. And that, you know, that was his – that, you know, and 89 to Becker. So he lost in tough matches in 88 and 89 to Wielander and Becker. But still, that was a great stretch, particularly 85, 6, and 7. Yvonne was, those, those are the years of which he's most proud. Yeah, Wimbledon to McEnroe is like, or excuse me, Wimbledon to Lendl is like the French to McEnroe. Both of those slams eluded those those great players yeah I think, that, I think what happened to Lendl in my opinion he would disagree with me I'm sure and he would have every right to he, he's the one who played these matches my feeling was again it was a certain rigidity and what happened was he and his coach Tony Roach who was a great coach they felt that Yvonne should serve in volley really virtually every point on the grass that he had to the bad bounces in those days that it was trickier the courts were faster I thought he could have tried a, a formula more like what we saw later from Courier and Agassi. Agassi in winning the title, Courier in 92, and Courier in reaching the final in 93. And they mixed it up. They, you know, he, 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 uh, Jim even more than Andre, really. Jim really mixed it up against Pete Sampras in 93 and served in volley on first and second serve selectively. And I thought that if Yvonne would have stayed back for more, behind more second serves, I honestly think he would have benefited. I know they, they would disagree, but I, I just thought it was too bad. Particularly, Becker played a great, great match against him in 86. There wasn't much he could have done. And Cash did play very, very well the, the following year, but I thought that mm-hmm. that was a match that, that uh, Yvonne could have won. And I, Yvonne, I know Yvonne, it was a guy that had, you coming out there on paper, you thought he had a great chance. And I didn't think he did himself justice in that latter final against Cash. You mentioned Jim Courier as well, and uh, he's, he's the one who, who broke the streak, or I, I should call it a drought, not a streak, for Americans at the French Open. Uh, 19, is it, is it 88? I know I have it written down. Which, uh, which? Courier wins the French. 
Oh, Nin- no, 91, did, 91. 91, yeah. He, he won it in 91 over Agassi, and then he defended it and won it again in 92 over Peter Corda, and then went for the hat trick and lost in five sets to Sergi Bruguera, which was a shame. You know, he had a great chance up early in the fifth, and he couldn't close him out. What was it about Courier that was different from all the Americans that preceded him and failed to win Roland Garros? Jim had, Jim was, you know, obviously, Chang was the one that first broke it in 89. Chang won in 89. uh, But Jim, Jim was just, I I think he was, again, he was a great clay court player. He was influenced a lot by Lendl, I thought. I thought there were a lot, although he had a two-handed backhand, that was the big difference between the two. He, he had the big serve, pretty big serve, and a, and a great inside-out forehand, even more lethal than Lendl's, if you could, it, it, as hard as it is to imagine that. I think it was an even bigger shot. So I think he, he was equally good on, almost equally good on clay and hard courts, and he adapted nicely on grass. And Jim was very disciplined, and it was a great fighter. And with some luck, he would have come away with three, three French Opens in a row. He had to settle for two. Well, we're a couple of commentators now, good commentators now, John McEnroe and, uh, and Jim Courier, right? They are. You know, that would, that would be an interesting team now that you bring it up. <laughs> uh, they don't work together. They would be very good together. Uh, and, uh, but I don't know if we're ever going to get a chance to see it. They each have very good minds. And Courier, I, I honestly think he might be the best analyst out there. Uh, I've listed there. There's a lot of very, very good ones in Gilbert and Cahill. Yep. We could put down the list. And John himself is terrific. His brother Patrick is terrific. But I just think that Jim has a, has a pretty. There's a real depth to his insights, and he's a great analyst and has a very good mind. And I thought I listened to his version. I thought they all did a great job on the Djokovic Federer Wimbledon final that you and I have talked about so much last year. But I thought that Courier was just magnificent on, on, on his tennis channel call of that match with Brett Haber was, was exemplary. Yeah, he's, he's fantastic. Um, I, I won't rank him because I'm very political in this. In this yeah, area. no, listen, it's, <laughs> I, I, neither, I, I'm, I'm saying they're all A's. They're all A's. Yes, they are. I, mean, I agree. Maybe, we're lucky. Know, I, I'm just, we're talking about really, really small differences here. But yes. I think that Courier, I guess what I'm getting at is Courier, I don't think is given as much, uh, as many uh, compliments for his commentary as he deserves. Everybody appreciates him and thinks he's very good, but I think yes. he's an outstanding commentator. Well, um, this has been some great commentating by, on, on your part, some really good insight on, on this match. Let's jump to, to 2020, where uh, unfortunately we're not um, sure. watching any live tennis. Do you have any... Any viewpoints or, or predictions that that are on your mind right now? And I know you were working on a piece for uh, tennis.com before this, um, so feel free to sh- share what you were working on as well. Oh, no, that was, you know, that was actually, I'm happy to share it. That was really a piece. I did a couple of pieces about some of the tournaments that we've lost during this period and the traditions that they had. One of them was the men's event in Houston, you know, the U.S. clay courts, and the other was the women's event in Charleston, which originally started in Hilton Head Island, South Carolina. They're both great, long-time, deeply appreciated events that have gone, look like they're going to go by the wayside this year unless somehow the, the calendar opens up. So that was what I was writing about. But no, I, uh, my thoughts are more, to get back to the big three, I guess, is that this, could, this will probably end up denying, it might deny Federer his last great chance 
uh, in other words, Wimbledon being canceled, that was always going to be Roger's best opportunity, I think, to win a 21st major. And may, now possibly, although I would never count him out even when he's 45, but he's, uh, it may have been really bad luck for him that Wimbledon's canceled this year. And then depending on what happens with the French and whether the, re the, the revised dates of playing in late September and October really happen, Rafa might miss out on a golden opportunity for number 13 in Roland Garrison in his 20th major. And then Novak was the, the hottest, you know, he was the best player. And he'd started the year by winning Australia. And, you know, really ever since his resurgence in the spring of 18, he'd been the best player in the world when he came back and won Wimbledon in the Open in 18. And he won Australia and Wimbledon. I mean, you know, he'd, he'd won, he was on a tear. He'd won the Australian, the last two Australians. He'd won the last two Wimbledons, and he'd won one of the last two Opens. So he was really setting the pace Novak Djokovic was. And there was every reason to believe that if we'd had a normal year here playing out the last three majors, that he was good for at least one, and I think probably two of those three. Now we may not have any of them played. I mean, Gil, I think it's highly unlikely that we'll get a U.S. Open because I don't know, I don't know how they can feel if they discuss with Governor Cuomo or the, or the health experts, can you really be safe to put all those people in a, you know, a 23,000 seat stadium or, or the other, you know, an Armstrong or the grandstand or just the grounds and the Fukar, just big, massive crowds floating around the open. I don't know how you safely do that. So I, I'm worried that we're, that the year is, may well be gone. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not terribly optimistic either. Uh, and I, I think we'll have plenty of time to uh, to talk in in the upcoming months and and update our our thoughts on this. I, I I'm a little bit more optimistic about how the big three might rebound from this. I think. Uh, oh, not, I don't I don't I don't think it's that they won't rebound. I would certainly I think Djokovic and Nadal will. I yeah. think it's a little harder for Roger given the age difference uh, for him if he was going to come back next year and be pushing on toward toward forty, getting toward his fortieth. Pretty hard to do. Uh, not impossible because he's an amazing athlete and he's very young for his age and he moves incredibly well for his age. But no, it's not that I don't think they're going to do more, but those, when you don't play those tournaments, you're missing tournaments that when you're in, these are prime years and prime opportunities. And I, I'm saddened for all three that they, they lose out on that. They didn't lose to Dominic Team or Sissipas yes. or, or, or one of their rivals. They lost to a, to a virus. Yeah, that when when you put it that way, it's uh, that that is a that is unfortunate. That's not that's not. But so so many different aspects of this are unfortunate oh, beyond sure. uh, beyond tennis, really. Of course. Um, of course. Anyway, uh, this was a lot of fun, and uh, let's do it again. Hopefully, we don't have to do it two more times before we're talking about um, more recent tennis. We'll say, but this was still a lot of fun. Oh, listen, I enjoyed it. Thank you for going back. I, 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 I thought it would be more fun for me, and it was, because I remember a lot of those points, and I have a photographic memory. A lot, a lot comes, springs back to my mind immediately, but it was more fun to not actually go, having not watched the match for probably over 10 years, at least 10 years. I might have watched it 12 years ago. I might have gone back to the tape. So it was much more fun to sort of play off your, what you had just seen recently. Look, you watched it on YouTube, right? Yes. Yeah, so you saw the NBC version on YouTube. It was, much, it was more enjoyable for me to do it that way, and I, I thank you for, for doing that, and it was fun to, uh, to get your take on it as well. Yes, 
Um, certainly. It, it, was, it was cool. A lot of fun indeed. Um, and we'll do it again soon. Thanks so much, Steve. Okay, Gil. Thanks for having me on. Have a good one. You too. Stay safe. You as well. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you mean cellar. the mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. Yeah. New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts. Yes.